There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. For many who have studied the history of Canada, the fur trade has loomed large in our understanding of the early developments of this nation. It was in search of furs and the riches of the fur trade which drove so many Europeans deeper and deeper into the North American continent. Much of the modern-day prairies, western Ontario, the interior of British Columbia, northern Quebec, were first mapped by European explorers who were seeking fame as explorers, but also backed by money from the fur trade. With every new region accessed, new potential to exploit untapped sources of fur-bearing animals arose. Yet, none of this would have been possible without creating strong links with local indigenous groups. It was the cooperation of various First Nations that facilitated the fur trade, and an extensive network of economic relationships were established throughout what would become Canada. While historically, These relationships have been written about in such a way as to present it as an entirely male iteration. More recent work has shown that indigenous women played a crucial role in the massive economic industry and were vital to both the success and the survival of so many trading relationships. This is Season 7, Episode 10, more than just beads and bannock, First Nations women and the fur trade. While the book I am about to recommend is certainly an older book than we normally recommend on this show, it is still considered one of the best works on the subject matter, and it is titled Many Tender Ties, Women in Fur Trade Society in Western Canada, 1670 to 1830. Its author is one of Canada's finest historians on the subject, and that is Sylvia Van Kirk. Now, a more recent book, however, is Recollecting 
Lives of Aboriginal Women of the Canadian Northwest and Borderlands, edited by Sarah Carter and Patricia McCormick. Recollecting is a rich collection of essays that illuminate the lives of late 18th century to mid 20th century Indigenous women who have been overlooked in sweeping narratives of the history of the West. From the very beginning of the arrival of Europeans in what would become Canada, the economic potential and rewards of the fur trade drove Europeans to continually push westwards in search of new sources of fur-bearing animals. Absolutely vital to this trade, however, has always been strong relationships with various First Nations. Most European fur traders were simply the end of a long trading chain that began deep in the interior where the fur was actually acquired and prepared, then traded through indigenous middlemen until it finally arrived on the sleds of European traders. While popular images of this trade are often of males interacting with one another, indigenous women, in fact, played a central role in the valuable trade. Now, at the sharp end, that is, at the point of contact between indigenous and white traders, indigenous women were responsible for trapping smaller fur-bearing animals, such as the marten, whose pelt was highly prized, as well as dictating what European goods to receive in turn, such as kettles, cloth, knives, needles, axes, etc., Secondly, First Nations women played an even more integral role in ensuring harmonious relations between First Nations and Europeans, largely through the custom and a wide network of intermarriage, primarily consisting of indigenous women and European men who were working in the trade. Amongst the Cree, the Ojibwa, and the Chippewaian in particular, First Nation wives proved able diplomats and peacemakers and became indispensable to the traders of both the Hudson's Bay Company and their rivals, the Northwest Company. In fact, there were so many of these marriages labeled à la façon de pays or in the manner of the country that they formed the basis for not only a new fur trade society, but later entirely new ethnic and cultural groups. Now, on both sides of the fur trade for much of the 17th and 18th century, these marital alliances were sought by First Nations and Europeans alike. For many indigenous leaders, these marriages created important social ties that further consolidated their economic partnership with specific trading companies or European groups, Primarily, this was because in the eyes of First Nations, the European husband was now drawn into their kinship circle. And this gave that band, tribe, clan, or that specific family special privileges and access to the Europeans and their goods. 
Now, this was not out of step with customary practices amongst indigenous groups in general, nor anything foreign to Europeans. Both saw within their respective societies marriages used, especially amongst the elites, as important social, political, and economic tools. Though it is interesting that the two main fur trading companies, the HBC and the Norwesters, had very different approaches to intermarriage at different times. The Norwesters, or the Northwest Company, openly supported and sanctioned such unions from its highest members to its lowest personnel. The HBC, however, was much slower in sanctioning these marriages. In fact, the HBC for some time actually forbade marriages between their employees and indigenous women. Yet, on the ground, far from London, England, or Montreal, Many HBC employees simply ignored this order, realizing the benefits of such marriage and also, frankly, being the product of lonely men living in the interior of a vast wilderness. This is, of course, also a part of this whole narrative. The men of the fur trade lived in a society absent of European women. In fact, For almost the first century and a half of the European fur trade in the territory called Rupert's Land, there were thousands of First Nations, much smaller numbers of European men who were primarily working in the fur trade, and no European women at all. Thus, for European men spending much of their lives amongst indigenous peoples, it's no surprise that romantic and sexual attachments would be formed, families would be made and domestic lives would be lived in the manner of the country. At this time, it is telling that even the marriage ritual conformed more to First Nations customs than European customs. For instance, often the wishes of the woman were respected in regards to choosing a partner. If she rejected the union, it most likely would never happen. As well, a bride price would be agreed upon between the potential husband and the father of the bride, often consisting of valuable trade goods. Now, what is often overlooked is how valuable indigenous women were as partners in the fur trade. They brought with them a wide variety of skills and knowledge which proved essential for living, trading, and surviving in the fur trade interior. One way, for instance, was in the production of good footwear, specifically the moccasin. While it was not common for fur traders to adopt indigenous clothing, the moccasin was one major exception. When Alexander Mackenzie made his 1789 expedition attempting to find an overland route to the Pacific Ocean and accidentally ended up reaching the Arctic Ocean, he writes about the indigenous wives who had accompanied two of his French-Canadian voyageurs and how they were critical in repairing moccasins to enable the rugged cross-country travel that characterized that trip. Another key component that allowed fur traders to survive in the harsh and rugged country of the fur trading interior was food, specifically pemmican a combination of berries, buffalo fat, and meat that was essentially North America's first energy bar, made and prepared primarily 
by indigenous women. Pemmican was so valuable that a war was fought over it between the rival fur trading companies of the HBC and the Norwesters. And certainly during lean winter months, indigenous wives at the various outposts often were the difference between survival and starvation as they were far more effective at catching small game and fish when food stocks ran low. George Nelson learned this firsthand. In 1815, he ran out of provisions at his small outpost north of Lake Superior, and if not for his Ojibwe wife, her Christian name was Marianne, though I was unable to find her indigenous name, the couple would have certainly starved. By snaring small game like rabbits and partridge and collecting wild rice and berries, she kept them fed through the long, dark winter. Frankly, indigenous wives played a key role in helping to build, make, and develop a wide variety of goods that were crucial to life in the fur trade. Collecting and preparing spruce roots and spruce gum, which were essential for the construction of birch bark canoes. Sometimes indigenous wives traveling with their fur trading husbands would end up even having to paddle as they were more experienced in the canoe than their European husbands. Other manufacturing tasks included preparing and applying the sinews for snowshoes and stripping and preparing fur pelts. There is plenty of evidence to show that indigenous women were important contributors to the success of the fur trade. As far back as 1754, for instance, Anthony Henday wrote that his expedition into the plains near modern-day Edmonton was owed much to the Cree women that made up part of his expedition. In 1821, an officer for the Hudson's Bay Company, Isaac Cowie, wrote a book on the fur trade life where he said that it was the counsel and contributions of their indigenous wives which helped them overcome numerous difficulties from lean winters to diplomatic issues with local indigenous groups. In fact, on numerous occasions, Hudson's Bay Company men wrote back to London to inform them that the work of their wives was pivotal to ensuring continued success in the fur trade, including access to fur trading regions on other indigenous land. While not married to a European, the Chippewan woman Thanaldether became famous when, in the early 18th century, she was part of an HBC team that successfully mediated and settled a dispute between the Cree and the Chippewan. The important role she played in this diplomatic event resulted in her becoming a valued liaison between the local HBC post and the First Nations whose land the HBC were on. All the way in the Pacific Northwest in the 1820s, a Chinook woman known as Lady Kalpo became an important mediator and diplomat between HBC Governor George Simpson, who had just built Fort Vancouver in modern-day Vancouver, Washington, and local indigenous groups. Cool Canadian history. We'll be back right after the break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just a reminder, folks, that if you are into ad-free content, that is, our content without sponsors or advertisers, head on over to Patreon. For as little as two bucks an episode, you will get all the ad-free content your heart desires. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And just when you're there, type in Cool Canadian History from the homepage and voila, you will have a safe and secure way to ensure contributions to ad-free programming. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. Despite the importance of Indigenous women to the fur trade, by the early 19th century, the social dynamic between the sexes and the cultures begin to change irrevocably. A long-standing rivalry between the HBC and the Northwest Company began to turn far more violent and even more competitive, resulting in greater pressure being placed on fur traders who in turn began to act more aggressively towards various First Nation groups, especially those seen as supporting the other side in this growing rivalry. This competition this aggressiveness all damaged many long-standing, mutually beneficial relationships between Europeans and First Nation leaders. As well, the importance of country marriages between Indigenous women and European men began to decline as a new pool of marriageable young women emerged, that of the daughters of European-Indigenous relationships. These women with dual heritage became more valued as wives amongst fur traders, both for their acclamation to life in the wilderness, but also because they were deemed more quote-unquote suitable to adapt to white European culture. As an example, in 1806, the Northwest Company sanctioned marriages à la façon du pays in the manner of the country with its traders and specifically with daughters of other white traders, but banned the marriage of its traders to full-blooded indigenous women. Remember, this was a practice formally sanctioned by the Norwesters for decades. As one writer commented, and I quote, marriages to the daughters of white traders was becoming in vogue. With the increase in marriages of mixed-blood daughters, the marriages themselves begin to take on the trappings of European customs and cultures. These were not women who would be left behind when the husband moved back to civilization, but would in fact return with them. The increased marriages with dual heritage women led to efforts to legally protect these new wives as well. For instance, in 1821, the HBC introduced marriage contracts which emphasized the financial obligations of the husband and recognized the status of the woman as a legitimate wife in the eyes of God. It's important to note that these steps 
to legally enshrine protection for these wives was a direct reflection of the fact that these new wives were partly white. While marriages to indigenous women in the previous centuries were important to cementing ties between traders and First Nation leaders, marriage ties in the 19th century played an important role in cementing ties within the fur trade hierarchy itself. It was recognized that a useful way to promote one's career was through marrying the daughter of a senior officer. An example of this is a young James Douglas, who later would become the top HBC official in the Pacific Northwest and governor of the colony of British Columbia. Douglas married Amelia Connolly, who was the daughter of a high-ranking HBC official named William Connolly. As an example of the mixed heritages common in these fur-trading families, Amelia spoke English and French, but also Cree and Salto, the languages of her Cree mother. Douglas's marriage to Amelia highlights the changing nature of marriages in the 19th century, as in more and more cases, the daughter being married was generally the offspring of a European indigenous relationship, no longer just indigenous. It was clear that by the beginning of the 19th century, fur trade society was changing. Nothing spoke to this more than the 1811 establishment of the Selkirk Colony in the Red River Basin, modern-day Winnipeg, Manitoba. This was the first settlement in what would become Western Canada, and in many ways introduced a more permanent version of white culture or European culture into the wilderness that had once been dominated by the nomadic fur trade culture. Arriving in the colony were Christian missionaries, more European men, and of particular importance, European women. This was notable as British wives had been banned from traveling to Hudson's Bay, Rupert's Land, since 1686. From the Selkirk colony, missionaries and settlers attacked the customs of fur trade culture and sought to erode much of the common practices, especially white indigenous relationships. Missionaries in particular attacked the country marriages as immoral and debased. Yet the rhetoric for this immorality focused on indigenous women. It was not the white fur trader to blame for promiscuity or sexual gratification, but in the minds of the missionaries and their parishioners, it was the indigenous women who were to be held responsible for the perpetuation of immorality. Thus, by the 1830s, having a white wife in the interior was a major status symbol. As well, by this point, most fathers of mixed heritage daughters were anxious to ensure their daughters were raised, schooled, and taught to be proper young Victorian ladies, eschewing any reference or connection to their indigenous heritage. While mixed marriages continued to be a feature of the fur trade well into the mid-19th century, it is clear that colonialism and settler expansion was not just a physical reality encroaching upon indigenous territory and fur trading regions, but was a social and cultural reality as well. 
Indigenous women, who were once prized for their crucial role within the fur trade, became increasingly cast as immoral temptresses who were better left outside the margins of white society. As the fur trade frontier transformed into a white agrarian settler frontier, indigenous women were pushed aside, and the daughters of white indigenous relationships were faced with either embracing the heritage of their mothers and living on the margins with them, or adapting and adopting European values and customs in order to survive in the new society that was spreading across their maternal people's ancient lands. The important role of women in the fur trade and the absolute crucial contribution they made to this significant white indigenous interaction was purposefully and effectively forgotten. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find me on Twitter at at DocBoris, that's D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And you can find this podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon, as well as on all podcast platforms. And feel free to leave us a comment and a rating. We love to hear from you. Stay cool, friends.